Now, we're in Isaiah again today, and you'll notice that I'm starting, we're going to start the, the message in Isaiah 44, verse 24, which is right in the middle of a chapter. Once again, we have to make decisions about, I have to make decisions about what constitutes a preaching passage. Most of the time, chapters and verses help us do that. But I don't know if you are aware of this. You might be new to the Bible, and I don't know if you're aware or not. But uh, the chapters and the verses in your Bible, in your English Bible, were not there originally. Interestingly, those chapter breaks didn't happen until about the 12 or 1300s kind of developed over time and the verses the verse breaks developed all the way through the 1500s and of course that makes it easy for us to find things you know when when there's a there's an account I don't want to get too I don't want to go too rogue here in this message but there's an account of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 where he shows up in the synagogue early in his ministry and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and, he, and it's Isaiah 61, but it doesn't say he turned to Isaiah 61. Why? Because they didn't know anything called Isaiah 61. They just knew Isaiah. And so he found the place that we know as Isaiah 61 because he didn't have chapter and verses. But they're helpful for us, and so we, we gladly use them. But the point is that sometimes the chapters break right in the middle of a good message. And that's happening today. So I'm picking up in chapter 44, verse 24. We're going to go all the way through chapter 45 because that is a message in itself. I'm following the thinking of many Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars that start there. Thus saith the Lord, and it's a message. It's a message that includes declaration and prediction about what's coming which the point of that is to say God is sovereign. God knows. God determines. God brings about. And then that message ends with a calling. And that calling is, so if God is sovereign and God's in control and God knows, turn to God in repentance and faith and be saved. So it's a declaration and it's a calling. We're going to see that today. I'm going to read just the calling the end of verse 45, but we'll see the whole thing. Stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read in Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 22, which is the end of this section. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Now, there's two parts. I want to go ahead and give you the structure up front. There's two parts to this text and to this message. <clears throat> the first part is in chapter 44, verse 24, all the way through chapter 45 and verse 21. That's most of it. And God there is declaring what he's going to do. He's predicting, and he does it. The second part is what I just read. Based on all of that, God then extends 
You could call it an invitation. I think it's stronger. I think it's an exhortation. I think it's maybe even stronger. It's a command to turn to the Lord to be saved. So two parts, the declaration of God's sovereignty and then the command to turn to the Lord and be saved. So first, this declaration, these predictions, starting in verse 44, the Lord is telling us that he is the only God. Now, we're just going to walk through this, okay? There are five sections. I may say, number one, number two, I may forget, don't worry. It's all there. <clears throat> but there are five sections in this part. And the first one is in verses four, chapter 44, verses 24 through 28. And the Lord is telling the people who are in exile what he is going to do. He is predicting. He is pronouncing. So remember, the people of God, they go by Israel slash Judah. They are in exile for their sin in Babylon. The Babylonians came in, took Judah, the land, took Jerusalem, the city, and took out of it those people and put them into their land, Babylon, in exile. Isaiah wrote this before the exile happened. It was predictive in nature. And we're going to see in just a moment that the Lord says he's going to raise up a king named Cyrus, Cyrus of Persia, who's going to defeat the Babylonians. And then Cyrus is going to send back the exiles to the land of Judah in the city of, Ju of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which happened, by the way. This is a prediction, but it happened in 538 B.C. Isaiah wrote this prophecy sometime in his ministry, which was 740 to 700 B.C., which is about 200 years earlier. This is predictive. It's prophecy, and it came to pass. That's the context of what's going on here, okay? Verse 24, the Lord said, I am the Lord who? And then he lists several things. So just let your eyes follow along there. Verse 24, chapter 44, I'm the Lord who? I formed you from the womb. That means the Lord conceived his people, Israel, Judah, he conceived them in Abraham and Sarah, and he brought them forth to be his people. It was gracious and it was miraculous. It was a miraculous birth of a son, Isaac, to Abraham, because Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. But there set in motion this great anticipation of the son who would come. Through this son would come a people, the nation of Israel, and through that nation would come another son, and we know him to be Jesus Christ. That's what it means when the Lord says, I formed you from the womb. And then he says in verse 24, I redeemed you, I redeemed them. That means he delivered them. To redeem is to, to deliver with a price. Well, you can think about the Exodus. God delivered his people out of Egypt at what price? We could say at the price of the lamb that was slain, the Passover lamb. We could say at the price of the Egyptians themselves. But that sets in motion the idea, the anticipation of a redemption that would come at a price. And who is that? Jesus Christ. 
And the Lord says, I am he who formed you, I am he who redeemed you, I am he who created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 25, the Lord is the one who frustrates liars and shows the foolishness of wise men. And when we think about our world and what's going on in our world, and we hear, we hear leaders or governments or people standing up and, and lying and declaring falsehood, and creating all kinds of conflict in the world and thinking that they're wise above God. It bothers us and we can know that the Lord will frustrate that. He will and he is now in many ways. What he's saying is, is he is sovereign over people. And here's what's interesting. God is sovereign over people who don't believe in him. I, I think our minds go into a, a situation where we think God's only sovereign over the people who want him to be sovereign. Well, that doesn't make him sovereign. God is sovereign over all people, even people who don't even acknowledge him, people who don't worship him, people who don't believe in him. God is still in control, and he says, I will frustrate liars, and I will make wise people look foolish. Another thing that says to us is that claims of unbelief don't allow us to escape him. If there are people who say, well, I'll never be accountable to God because I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter whether we believe in God. We're going to be accountable to God. Verses 26 and 27, the Lord says, I'm the one. I do all this, but here's, here's also what I do. I confirm my word through my messengers, my prophets. And the word in the context, this word that we're talking about today in Isaiah is the word that Judah, the land, and Jerusalem, the city, are going to be reoccupied with God's people. And they're going to be rebuilt by God's people. And then we come to verse 28 in this first section. And this is what the Lord says. And this is, this is interesting. We'll explain it, but I want you just to hear it. This is the Lord. I am the Lord, he says, who does all these things. And one other thing he does, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill, fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundations shall be laid. Now, this is a very important verse because it's so specific, and it reveals the truth about God. So let me give you just a slight bit of history, okay? I know you're longing for the history. <laughs> In the 6th century, the 500s B.C., the Persian Empire dominated this part of the world. The Persians, as we've already said, defeated the Babylonians, but they also dominated all the other nations around them. They were under the leadership of this king, Cyrus. Now, what's interesting is their policy, not the Babylonians' policy, was to go in, take people, put them in exile, and try, sort of re-educate them. You know, new language, new culture, sort of destroy the old. But the Persians under Cyrus had a different policy, a different approach. And when they subjugated people, when they took over nations, they allowed those nations and those people the freedom to maintain their own culture, to maintain their own religion, and to even stay in their own homeland while they remained under Persian control. This is much like what the Romans did later. And so when Cyrus, the Lord said he raised up Cyrus. When the Lord raised up Cyrus, when, when Cyrus came along, the Jews 
were returned back to the land of Judah, back to the city of Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were allowed to worship God. All of this under Cyrus, who's a pagan. And the Lord says, I did that. The Lord did that. So you're a little homework, not homework, but a little Sunday afternoon assignment if you want to. Is go home and read Ezra chapter 1. It's all about this. That's where it happened. The point. Specific prophecy was fulfilled. The Lord God of Israel predicted all of this would happen, and it came to pass. Sometimes people think that there's religious history, and then there's real history. Like, religious history is the history of religions. And if they don't believe in religions, they say, well, then it's just the history of myths, which is no history at all. Or they say it's the history about just a few religious events or some religious people in a remote part of the world. And so they don't think of religious history as being real history or world history. But what's happening in Isaiah is we're understanding that Cyrus and the Persians ruling and their empire and then returning the Jews to Judah and to Jerusalem is not just religious history, it's world history, it's real history. And the message of Isaiah is that the Lord is sovereign over all of that. People want to relegate God to little corners of the earth where people acknowledge him. And Isaiah is saying, no, the Lord is sovereign over the world rulers for, the, for his own purposes. The Lord predicts it, he plans it, he predicts it, and he carries it out. The Bible says that this continues to be the case. It wasn't just back then. It continues to be the case. Most clearly seen in the events of the coming of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the ruler, uh, would come and be born in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the land of Judah. Micah, Old Testament prophet Micah chapter 5 tells us that. Well, here in Isaiah, the Lord, 500 years earlier, raised up Cyrus to return the Jews to Judah where Bethlehem is. They'd been all taken out. You can't have a Messiah from the Jews born in Bethlehem if there aren't any Jews in Bethlehem. And the Lord returns them through Cyrus. And then in the days of Jesus' birth under the Roman Empire, under Roman rule, 500 years later, a census was taken, a registration was issued by Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, and that required Joseph and his not yet but soon to be wife named Mary to go from Nazareth in Galilee back to Bethlehem, where David city is, where Joseph was from, so he could register, and there Jesus was born. And the point is, the claim of Isaiah is, the claim of the Bible is, that God 
revealed all of that to the prophets, and then he did it. He is Lord of history. It is the Lord who does all these things. All that in that first section. Second section, I'll go a little quicker on these others or we'll never get home. But second section is chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. Now the Lord actually speaks to Cyrus. This is a a time where God speaks to a pagan king directly. Again, prophetically, predictively, through what Isaiah wrote before Cyrus was even born. Now remember, Cyrus is going to hear this. He's going to read this. But it was written by Isaiah 200 years later about him. Verse 1, he says, that, he says to Cyrus, you're my anointed. Now that's the same word for Messiah. It's the same word for chosen one. In this context, it means you're my chosen one for this purpose. He's not calling Cyrus the Messiah. He's not calling Cyrus the Isaiah 53 Messiah who's going to atone for our sins. He's saying for this purpose, right now, in this point in history, I have raised you up. He says, I have grasped you by the hand and I'm going to work through you in history to conquer all the nations around you, to set in place this new policy that's going to lead to the return of the Jews to Judah into Jerusalem. Verse 3 says that Cyrus would know by reading the prophecy what the Lord was going to do. Now there's no record that Cyrus ever became a God-fearer. Cyrus remained a pantheist. His worldview was that there were many gods Each nation and each people had one. You see, his point was, let them all worship their gods so they'll be peaceful. Never get any idea that he actually became a a true God-fearer, a monotheist like we talked about last week. But the Lord says to Cyrus, you're going to know this. I'm going to do this through you because I want you to know that it's me. In verse 6, he says, I want the people to know that that the Lord is God. He is the one and only. In verse 7, Look at verse 7. I'll read that one because this, this includes a very important truth. The Lord says, I, so the Lord raises up Cyrus to do all this thing, clear out the nations, get, get his people back. And then he says in verse 7, to sum up, I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this section includes a statement. That, in, that calls for a complete and absolute trust in the wisdom of God. There's no way around this. This verse, the Lord says, he created light, he created darkness, he, created, he makes well-being, he created calamity, he does it all. This calls for an absolute trust in the wisdom of God. We have to trust that God is righteous. We're called to trust that God is right in everything he does. He says, I am the one who does all these things. We have to trust 
that somehow the Lord does it for his purposes that we can't understand. And that the way God does all things is right. He does things that at times look to us like light. But he does other things that look to us at times like darkness. But they are his doing. And his purposes are always right. The Lord does things that look to us like well-being. And the Lord does things that are for calamity. And he does them all in righteousness. And the context here about Cyrus would say to us that when God raised up Cyrus to conquer nations, he's a pagan ruler, he conquers nations, he conquers Babylon, but he returns the exiles who are going to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. He's calling him his shepherd, his anointed one, but then he's turning right around and saying in verse 5 of chapter 4 or 5, you don't even know me. See, Cyrus himself looks like light to some, looks like darkness to others, looks like well-being to some, looks like calamity to others. All of this says that God is in control. He has purposes. He gets them fulfilled, and the way he does it is right. Well, we know, we know as we read the rest of the Bible Light, darkness, well-being, calamity serves his purposes. And that's revealed later in the book of Romans, in the book of Ephesians, when we see that God fulfills all of his gracious purposes in Jesus Christ. God created all that. A mystery to us. But righteousness for God. We have to trust him. This is interesting, and I don't say this in a mean way. I do not say this in a mean-spirited way. I've heard pastors say something like this in a mean-spirited way, and I don't think that's right. I think we should say it with, with, with all understanding of each other. God does not meet our demand for specific answers and explanations. I don't say that mean. You know, I'm not being mean. It's... He doesn't do that in my life, and it's challenging, and it's difficult. Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Show me. And the Lord gives us a vision of his big plan. He is moving all things for the purpose of his glory, the glory of his grace in Jesus Christ. He, we know the big plan. We understand that. He reveals that, but he doesn't show us the details. He doesn't Meet our need, our, our insistence, our demand for specificity so that we will then trust him. He doesn't do that. He says, here's my plan. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It may look like light or dark or well-being or calamity, but you, as my children, are called to trust me. This is hard. And you can pray for me. And I'll pray for you. And we'll pray for each other. Because this is what God's calling us to do. Third section is in verse, chapter 45, verses 9 through 13. Of course, of course, we're going to push back on that. We're limited in our understanding. We're humans. We want explanation. We have, we have pride in our lives. We, we want God to show us. So what does the Lord do in this next section, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 45? 
he affirms that he's right to do what he intends to do in the way he intends to do it. Look at verse 9. He says, Woe to him who strives with me who formed him. You know what he means by that? He's saying, Woe, woe, woe to you who look at God and say, God, you don't have a right to do things this way. Lord, I demand from you an answer. You must show me before I'm going to believe in you. He says, woe to you who do this. Does the clay, look at verse 9, does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or, Or does that same clay say to the one who formed it, your work has no handles. Woe to him, it says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Woe, he says. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed you, ask me of things to come. And Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth, I created man. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, I commanded all the hosts. And look, I have stirred him. I've stirred up Cyrus. I have stirred him up in righteousness. My way is right. Cyrus may not be righteous, but God's righteous. And I will make all his ways level. I will, the Lord says of Cyrus, I'm going to make the way pl- uh, prepared for him to what? He shall build my city and shall set my exiles free. Not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Oh. And the Lord's not being mean. He's just being clear. He says, you shouldn't tell me how to form my pots. And you shouldn't tell me how to raise my children. I know what I'm doing. I'm God. In verse 13, he says, I'll raise up Cyrus. That's him. That's the him of verse 13. I'll raise up Cyrus. He will free my people. He will rebuild my city. And he won't get paid for it. That's what the Lord says. Trust me. Trust me. The fourth section is in chapter 45, the next verses, verses 14 through 19. The Lord does reveal a bit. Verse 14, he says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you. He's talking to Israel now. Come over to you. They will be yours. They shall follow you. They, will, they shall come over in chains. They will bow down to you. And they will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you. There's no other God, no God beside him. So when the Lord delivers his people and returns them back to rebuild the city through Cyrus, what the Lord is doing is the Lord is revealing himself to be among his people. And he says, all of the nations are around are going to see this and they're going to know And they're going to come and they're going to bow down. Verses 15 through 19, the God who hides himself, meaning he is mysterious in his ways, he doesn't always explain what he's doing, is also, verse 19, the God who speaks and he reveals his salvation so that people will seek him. So he's saying, listen to me and trust me. You are my people, and the nations will see when I deliver you that I am with you, and they will come to, many will come to know me. It's the same that Paul said about the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in the New Testament. He said, when you're gathered for church like this, 
And if you've got somebody who comes in who's not a Christian, not a believer, when they're among you, they're supposed to see God in the way you worship and pray and love each other and hear his word and respond. they're, They're supposed to see God in the presence of God's people so that people who come into the church, welcomed into the church as unbelievers, say, God is in your midst. And Paul said they were going to fall down and declare him and worship him. That's what God's going to do with the nation, with his nation here. And then the, the fifth section, the last part of this first half, the fifth, fifth section is in chapter 45, verses 20 and 21. Again, the Lord challenges those who still want to depend on idols. He said all this about himself. And still there are some people. Verse 20, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no understanding who carry about their wooden idols. They still got the idols in their right hand. Remember last week? They're clutching to the idols. And they keep praying to a God that cannot save. The Lord is challenging these people. And then in verse 21, he says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who predicted 200 years ago? that I would get my people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem through a pagan king named Cyrus. Who declared that? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none like me. That sounds exactly like Acts chapter 4 when the apostles were preaching about Jesus and they said Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but he has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other savior by which you must be saved. No name under heaven by which you must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. That's the same thing. In other words, trust him. Five points in this first half and all five points lead to trust him. Trust that everything God has done and everything God is doing and everything God will do is for the purpose of revealing his son And his saving purposes and saving his people. A right and a good and a gracious purpose. Trust him. And then we come to the call. The second half. And only one point here. Turn to the Lord. Chapter 45 verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Turn to me. To turn to God, you have to turn from yourself. That's called repentance. Repent. And turn to God. Turn to Christ. Turn to me and be saved. That's the result of turning to Christ. Be saved. Now, there's two ways of understanding that. One way is be saved once for all. Become a Christian. Have your sins washed away. Be reconciled to God. Become a child of God. Be filled with His Spirit. Get on the road that leads to heaven. Be saved once for all. 
And the other way of looking at it, they're both true. The other way of looking at it is be saved in all things. In every situation of your life, in every testing of your faith, in every trial, in every temptation, turn to the Lord and be saved. Be preserved in faith and in fellowship for his purposes and for his glory all the way to the end. Turn to the Lord and be saved. Turn to the Lord and be saved all the ends of the earth. There's the reach. There's the reach. All the ends of the earth. This is why we preach. It's why we pray. It's why we think about the whole world. If the Lord declares himself to be sovereign over the whole world, Jesus gives his commission to the church to make disciples of all nations. That's the reach. Then he says, for I am God and there is no other. That's the reason you turn to the Lord. Because there is no other. Two examples of turning to the Lord. One, the the church in Thessalonica in the New Testament. First chapter, Paul said, I came to you. It was a pagan city under the, in, in the Roman Empire. Paul said, I came to you and I declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I called you to turn to the Lord and be saved. And listen to what he said. You did. You turned from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Turn to the Lord. And the second illustration I want to give you of turning to the Lord is about a man named Charles Spurgeon. And I'm telling you his story because I don't know if you have a conversion verse or not. I don't. Yeah, I, I was listening to a lot of things being preached, and I don't have like one verse that did it for me and I came to, came to faith. I don't have one. But many of you have a conversion verse. Like I heard somebody preach or a conversion chapter. Like I heard somebody preach on John 3 and that's what did it. Well, when Charles Spurgeon became a Christian, it was Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. It's 1850. He was 15 years old. And there was a massive snowstorm. And he was in England. And he was, why, why was a 15-year-old unconverted young man trying to get to church in a snowstorm because the Holy Spirit was working in his life. That's why. And so he's 15 years old. He's trying to get to church. There's a big snowstorm and he's walking and he can't get to the place he intends to go because it's snowing so bad. So he goes into a little small street, a little lane where there's a, a very small Methodist church. And he said there were about 12 to 15 people in attendance at church on that day in a snowstorm. And the pastor himself couldn't make it. And so a man stood up to preach. Spurgeon said he thought he was maybe a shoemaker or a tailor. And he stood up and he had a text. His text was Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. And he said the sermon was one line. Said variously, 50 different ways. Turn to the Lord and be saved. Look 
to the Lord and be saved. He repeated it over and over and over in all these creative ways until finally the preacher was speaking as if he was Jesus on the cross. Turn to me and be saved. Look at me dying on this cross. Look at me dying for your sins. Look at me, look at me. And then he kept saying it over and over. He said, this went on for a full 10 minutes. That's how long the sermon lasts. Don't you wish? (laughs) 10 minutes he said this. Until finally he ran out of things, different ways to say, look to me and be saved. And he looked straight at Charles Spurgeon, whom he did not know. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And you will always be miserable if you don't look to Christ. But if you do look to Christ, then you will be saved. Young man, look to Christ. And so Spurgeon did. And he said in his mind, in his heart, he said the sun replaced a dark cloud that was over his heart. And he rejoiced in the blood of Christ. He was saved. Now, I've read a little bit of Charles Spurgeon. Because he was a great pastor. And because he wrote some wonderful things about Another dark cloud, the dark cloud of depression. Spurgeon became a Christian at 15, but for the decades that, for the rest of his life, throughout the decades, he had seasons of depression. And so he wrote a lot about that, and he wrote a lot about turning to the Lord, about continuing to look to the Lord. And he practiced looking and turning to the Lord throughout his life so that he could continue to be saved from each new bout of depression that he had. Spurgeon turned to the Lord and he was saved once for all. He was made right with God, a child of God. And he continued to turn to the Lord for the rest of his life so he would continue to be saved in every trial and tribulation and testing of his faith. Turn to Christ today, once for all, and in all things.